Oh. Pickleball, what is that about? Golf, now that's a real sport. Um, it's always a really special occasion whenever we introduce new members and uh, it's very special. Every one of you have a unique story and a unique place in God's kingdom and how you came to him and it's very special and beautiful to be able to share that with you. So thank you. Uh, our scripture reading for today comes to us from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. This is God's word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. So today we are beginning a new series in the book of Zechariah, and I'm wondering how, how many of you actually have read the book of Zechariah? How many of you have you actually studied it or even you know, heard someone preach from this book? I bet not many of you, right? I myself have never preached from the book or, or uh, actually I confess, I, I never studied this book in much depth, okay? So I, I'm going to be challenged just as much as you're challenged as we uh, work through the series together. As we begin, let me mention that Pastor Hehu was especially excited to hear that I was going to preach from Zechariah because, as was announced, he's preparing a series in the book of Revelation, and Zechariah is actually very heavily quoted in Revelation, which means that if you understand Zechariah well, you'll understand Revelation better, okay? So there's some extra motivation for you to listen well, but also, if you haven't signed up yet, please consider signing up for the class, okay? All right. Um, also, as, as we begin the series, it would be helpful for all of you to know something about the historical setting of this book. And I know it, it may initially sound like a lecture, because I, have to, I, I do have to explain some history, okay? But I'll, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible, all right? First of all, what you need to know is that Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, okay? And they were both prophets who were called to speak to a people who had returned from Babylonian exile, okay? Now, why were the people of God in Babylon? Or for those of you who may not know the history, simply put, it's because they became too much like the nations around them, right? In other words, they became too worldly. God required them to trust him and live by his word, but over time, they became increasingly rebellious and ungodly. And so God, he 
He sent his various prophets to warn them, like, if you don't repent, I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to bring ruin upon you. But did they listen? No. Right? So finally, in, in 722 BC, God, he chose to use this very, I, was, I mean, ungodly for sure, a pagan nation uh, called Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you, know the, if you don't know the history, there were you know, two kingdoms. There was a divided kingdom. The northern was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah, okay? And actually, Israel was, was far more godless than Judah. And so guess what? God struck them first with Assyria. Okay, they were essentially uh, judged first for their rebellion. And then in 586 B.C., God used another pagan nation, this time the great Babylonian empire led by the powerful Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, including the holy city, right, the holy city of Jerusalem. It was a big deal in Jewish history. And so that's how the people of Judah ended up in Babylon, right? They had to essentially live as slaves for several decades without a place to worship and with really no hope of returning home. I mean, how are they going to return home? When, when Babylon's ruling over them, right? But as you hopefully believe by now, God is sovereign over history and over every earthly power. And so it was God who in his perfect timing used, guess, guess who, another great superpower of that time, this time the great Persian Empire led by King Cyrus to actually take down the formidable Babylon in 539 BC, and it's in that uh, year where King Cyrus, sorry, they weren't taken down. They were taken down earlier, and then in, in 539 BC, King Cyrus declared an edict that allowed the Jews to return home. Okay, that was a general flow of history. And so as you can imagine, God's people were excited about their newfound freedom. God was essentially giving them a fresh start, and they were very eager to return to rebuild their broken city along with God's temple, right? Imagine, brothers and sisters, not being able to properly worship God for decades and then being given the freedom to finally return home and to rebuild your place of worship, right? Amazing. I mean, this is a huge event in their lives. And let me read a few verses from the book of Ezra, that will help you better understand the context of Zechariah's message, okay? Ezra chapter three says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, he is steadfast, his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the Lord of this house was laid. So, so I hope you're able to envision and even feel their excitement of being back home and, and rebuilding the city and God's temple. See, they, they had their priorities straight, at least early on, right? As soon as they returned from exile, their number one priority was to rebuild. However, life is never that easy, right? Life is never that easy. Just when they thought that they were getting their lives back together again, what happens is that they meet very strong opposition, right? Another wrinkle in the story. And we're not talking about 
a temporary setback or some sort of minor obstacles that can be easily overcome, right? It wasn't just bad weather, okay? It wasn't just a temporary economic recession. It wasn't just like, if you think of our, our situation here with our building projects and what we try to accomplish, it wasn't just inflation, okay? It wasn't the material cost soaring during a few years' time. It wasn't the unreasonable Fairfax County slow bureaucracy. I'm not bitter, I'm just saying. These Fairfax County officials sometimes are ridiculous, okay? Right, Ben? They're very slow. The truth is, though, that whenever we take upon important tasks, most of us, we budget for those kinds of temporary setbacks. But with regard to God's people who just returned from exile, we're told that there was something more going on. There was strategically planned opposition that went on for more than a decade. This wasn't some minor thing. Ezra chapter four gives us some detail. It says, then the people of the land, so the surrounding people, they discouraged, intentionally, they they discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid, right? They threatened them if they were continuing to build. Like, they, they, they even paid people, they hired people. It says they bribed people. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Right? So this is like a prolonged period of time. So we learned that in, in the face of this kind of serious opposition that was planned and strategic, the people of God eventually do become paralyzed by fear and frustration. Like they had enough, and so they quit. This is where the the dates become very informative, okay? The year God speaks to his people through his prophet Zechariah is the year 520 BC, and that means, I'll do the math for you, okay? That means that roughly 18 years have passed since God's people returned to Jerusalem And guess what? The the temple of God's still not built. The foundation was laid, but there's no structure on top of that. They quit. They quit the job. And you know what this means, right? It means that something is not right with God's people. When I read this account as a younger pastor in my early 30s, my response was something like, come on, people. (laughs) Come on. How, How can you give this so easily? What's wrong with you? This is pathetic, right? I surely wouldn't, would have acted differently, right? But now as someone who has personally experienced many project delays in my own life and in my own ministry, I think I can fully sympathize with God's people here in this story. And if I'm to be honest, I don't think I would have had the strength or moral courage to continue on with the project as well. I I can deal with an incompetent and uncooperative Fairfax County bureaucracy, but I, I don't think I'd be able to fight against people who are specifically targeting me, right? Hired by others to make my life a living hell over the course of 10 plus years when I got a family to feed. I got things to do. I got, I got people to take care of. 
And so the human side of me wants to just offer these people some relief. Like if I saw them, I'd honestly, I think I'd wanna hug them and, and, and show them I understand. Like I, I understand you guys, right? I feel for you. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with such a human impulse to show sympathy, but it's, it's more important. I, I gotta always draw myself to God's word and draw you to God's word, right? So it's, it's more important, right? Regardless of how I feel about the situation, it's more important than I, that we look at how God diagnoses their 18 years of inactivity, you see. And I think it's undeniable. I mean, spiritual stagnancy or spiritual apathy, right? These are expressions that would accurately describe the state of God's people and why God chose to send not just one prophet, but two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to address them. That's what's going on, right? That's, that's, that should be helpful context for you. And virtually all of us struggle, right? at some point in our lives with spiritual stagnancy, have we not? And maybe it's still something you're struggling with. And that's why I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this message from Zechariah will resonate with you. Some of you may remember the message I gave from Haggai. Anything, anything come to mind? Right? If, it's one of my favorite messages, so I hope at least our leaders remember it. Then do you remember it? <laughs> All right, let me jog your memory. Haggai's message came two months prior to Zechariah's message, and it was focused on calling God's people to rebuild the house of God. All right, this may sound familiar to you. All right, God's message to them was initially, is it a time for you to rebuild your paneled houses while my house remains in ruins? Remember that message? So Haggai's basic message was, people of God, it's time to rebuild the house of God once again after 18 years delay. It's time. In contrast, Zechariah's message had a slightly different twist to it, okay? It wasn't, let's build God's house. It was rather, people of God, it is time now to rebuild your faith in God. It's time to rebuild your faith. His specific words are, return to me, people. Return to me, and I will return to you. That was the word given to them. Return to me. And honestly, the people of God at the time may have been tempted to respond with, what do you mean, God? We're here, we returned from Babylon. We made the long journey, we're back, we're home. What do you mean, return to you? Well, you see, God's people, they did make the long physical journey back home, but the problem was that their hearts were not fully turned back to God yet. We all know what it means to be physically present but not truly there, don't we? We all know what that means. Husbands are especially guilty of this, including myself, right? It's like I'm physically present at home, right? But my mind is wandering elsewhere. <laughs> I'm with my wife and my kids, but often my mind is somewhere else. 
In the same way, God's people were physically present in Jerusalem, but their hearts were far from him. And so that's why God says, return to me. Brothers and sisters, we all need to hear this message because our hearts, with no exceptions, are all prone to wonder, right? So God is saying to you and to me this morning, my child, do not remain in your spiritually stagnant state, but return to me. I want you to hear those words as God's word to you. As I was reflecting upon this passage, I I thought of a few reasons why it may be hard for us to return to the Lord. And as I go through each of these reasons, you'll be glad to know that I edited one out, so the message is not going to be as long as it could have been. But I hope to convince you as I go through these that why these reasons are not good enough reasons for you to remain in your spiritually stagnant state, okay? In other words, don't make excuses. Number one, we are afraid of what man can do to us. That's reason number one, uh, we may be so slow to return to the Lord. You know, fear of man is undeniably one of the reasons why God's people grew distant from him, right? They, They grew afraid as Ezra showed us. They grew afraid of the planned opposition. Um, People who were committed to harming them. They were afraid of such people. You know, nothing really much has changed in the world, right? Jesus said, if the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. And that, that basic dynamic between the world, and God's people, it held true in 520 BC as it does now in the year 2023. Same thing, same dynamic. God, of course, he knows our tendency to fear men, and I believe that's one reason why he repeatedly uses the title Lord of Hosts to address himself in this passage. Now, you might, I'm not sure if you caught that, but there is a lot of redundancy in this passage. You know, Lord of hosts is repeated again and again. Like, I had to really understand what's going on here. But in Hebrew, it reads, okay, in in American, I guess, uh, in in the pronunciation uh, that that we tend to use is Jehovah Sabaoth. But I'm going to go back to my seminary training days, okay? I'm going to pronounce it as Yehovah Sabaoth, okay? That way I feel better about myself. Uh, so Yoah Sabaoth, that's how the Hebrew reads, okay? Um, now, I want you to do me a favor. Go ahead and count how many times it's used in this short statement, okay? Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, again, Lord of hosts means, or, or is, uh, is the word Yoah Sabaoth. Return to me, says, again, the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh my goodness, how many times are we? Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says, one more time, the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So how many times did you hear that refrain? Four times in this short statement. And you may be thinking, what's the big deal, right? So what? Well, 
As you know, there are many titles that God uses in Scripture, and each title is meant to reveal a unique aspect about God that's intended to actually help us trust in him a bit more, right? For example, Yehovah Ireh, or, you know, Jehovah Jireh, it means the Lord will provide, and it's meant to remind us that God can be trusted in times of great need because he is a gracious provider. That's what Yehovah Ireh is supposed to do for our hearts. And Yehovah Rapha means the Lord who heals, And it's meant to remind us that we can trust God when we are not well, because he is our great physician, our Yoah Rapha, who is able to heal us. So what is Yoah Sabaoth meant to do? Well, I'm going to help us here because I think just based on the ESV translation of Lord of Hosts, the meaning doesn't come as clear. I'm going to read a different passage, Psalm 46, 7 from different translations, and this will help you a lot, I guarantee it. And as you read, you'll also see why Pastor Hugh prefers the NLT translation over the ESV, okay? For some reason, he always says NLT is the best, okay? So, but but this this actually um, builds his case for it. ESV, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, okay? NIV, here's the NIV. The Lord Almighty is with us, okay? So same Hebrew, Jehovah, Sabaoth, translated as the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the meaning becomes a little clearer, okay? What the Lord of hosts is supposed to mean. Here's the NLT, Pastor Hugh's favorite translation, okay? The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. Give me the shivers. The God of Israel is our fortress. The Lord of heaven's armies. And so that actually, it gives us a better picture of what Lord of hosts is meant to mean. Does it not? Now, do you kind of see why God repeatedly says, Yoah Sabaoth, again and again and again and again? It's because he knows Uh, We're often guilty of fearing man over fearing God. And he wants us to clearly remember who he is, right? And he's saying, look, I I am none other than Yehovah Sabaoth, right? I'm not just the Lord of these human armies, but I am the Lord of the more powerful heaven's army, which makes me unmatched in strength and power. So why should any of us be afraid of what man can do to us if this is our God, Yoah Sabaoth? That's the point, and that's the big deal. I personally think that this is the main reason why Christians lose their distinct identity and their distinct flavor, their salty flavor in this world. It's because over time they grow too afraid of what man can do to them. So brothers, sisters, know that God is calling us to remember his name, Yoah Sabaoth, so that we may place our trust in him once again, because enlarging our view of God is is really the only antidote against fear of man. Don't you see? God needs to become much bigger in our eyes if we're to return to him. 
That's the point. Another reason why it may be hard for some of us to return to God is because we are plagued by our past guilt and shame. You may have heard me uh, share this story with you uh, a while back, but while working at Wendy's many years ago, uh, this was soon after I moved back from Korea, trying to reassimilate to the U.S. again. Uh, my first job was Wendy's, right, on the campus of U of I in Champaign-Urbana, right? Uh, tough job. <laughs> but there was a homeless man that would sit right outside the store pretty much every day. And he was almost always drunk. I could smell the alcohol from his mouth and his clothes. But one day I decided to buy him a meal and I asked him if he ever heard about Jesus. And he said, yes, he has. But he went on to explain that he wasn't worthy enough for God. He said, I've committed too many wrongs. And so it was clear that he was plagued by a strong sense of guilt and shame for how he had lived his life in the past. I bet some of you can relate to that. And, you know, it's good if you have this deep remorse for your past sins. It's a very good and necessary step for anyone to take. But I thought about this, you know, what should I highlight here? I... I I wanted to say very clearly that we need to understand what the greatest crime and sin is that we commit before God. You know what that is? You know? It's actually to reject God's offer of grace and to remain distant from him, right? to remain rebellious, to remain unwilling to approach him. Because when we remain distant from him, we fail to fulfill the very purpose for which he created us, which is to love him and serve him and fellowship with him, worship him, you see. I think if we truly realize how evil it is in God's sight for us to remain spiritually stagnant or distant, we wouldn't be so comfortable remaining where we are. And by the way, it, it's... God who uses the word evil to describe people who have turned away from him and who remain distant from him. It's not me, okay? Look at our passage once again. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So to return to God is to turn away from evil. If you refuse to return to God, then you're essentially choosing to remain in your evil ways. You see how that works? This story may help you. Okay? When I was a young boy, I remember sitting around the dinner table with the family we had visited. You know, my parents were close friends with this one family, and they also had kids uh, who were my age, and so they were hoping that all the kids would get along. But there was this one boy uh, who I could tell was a bit of a problem uh, for his parents because he just would not listen very well. And, you know, his mom was preparing his dinner plate, 
but she put something on his plate that he did not like, probably some green vegetables, okay? Like any good mom would do, okay? If you're a good mom or dad, you would put some green vegetables on your kid's plate, okay? And of course, he shouted, no, I don't want that. I'm not gonna eat that. Now his mom insisted that he eat them like any loving mom would. And all of a sudden, I kid you not, I remember this very clearly because it was so shocking. He picked up his fork and stabbed his mother's back with it. Thankfully, he wasn't strong enough to do too much damage, but we were all shocked as we were sitting around the table. And even my young mind knew that what I was witnessing was actually evil. (laughs) This was evil. Because how could you stab your own mother who gave you birth, who bathed you, who clothed you, who fed you, who loved you all all those years? How could you do that? What he did in that moment was evil, and, and everyone knew it. And I share that example with you to make the point that that same principle applies to our relationship with God as well. It's as if we are stabbing God in the back when we refuse to listen to him and to insist on our own ways. So when you think about how people turn away from God, maybe it's you, you've turned away from God. I believe that you should have the same visceral reaction you had just a few minutes ago as I shared that story with you. Evil. I have one final reason to mention before closing the message. Some of you may be slow to return to God because you fear rejection. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember a married man once sharing a story with a small group of, of brothers. I was part of that group. It was sharing of how his wife had lost her temper over something he unintentionally did. But as soon as he realized that his wife was upset over something he, he did, he was apologetic. And, he, and after realizing that he really hurt her, he quickly apologized, only to hear her respond in greater anger. And he knew that She needed more time to cool down, but in our small group, uh, this is a fellow pastor, by the way. Don't don't think of our, it was a different, I I was in a different cohort outside of the church. Don't try to identify who who it was, okay? He, He confessed in that group that he was afraid to approach his wife again because he just didn't want to feel rejected and actually He didn't want to feel disappointed and disgusted by his wife's ungracious attitude. Can you relate to that? Maybe you've offered sincere apologies before, only to be met by a cold shoulder, a blank stare, or even an angry heart. And you're fearful that God would treat you in the same way. But I have some good news for you this morning. God does not reject genuine sorrow 
and repentance, right? Notice he doesn't say, return to me, and maybe, if I'm having a good day today, maybe I'll return to you. Okay? You've got exactly a 12% chance I'm going to return to you if you do this. That's not what he says. Rather, it says, return to me and I will return to you. That's a firm promise with no conditions. I will return to you. It's basically, brothers and sisters, in other words, saying, repent of your sins and I will forgive you. See? Same concept, but I, I personally, as I'm studying this, I really like the expression, this new fresh expression of return to me and I will return to you because it gets to the heart of what forgiveness is meant to accomplish, doesn't it? Namely, reconciliation between two parties. That's the heart of forgiveness, isn't it? That's why, I, you know, whenever I see people offering forgiveness without any expectation or effort to actually reconcile with Others, I think that might, that's not ultimately what forgiveness was meant for. It, forgiveness is not just, you know, meant to make you feel good about what you're doing. It it's, has in view this reconciliation process. It's part of the process toward reconciliation. I'm sure you think that there's something incomplete if my wife said that she forgave me for something that I never even repented of. That'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Like, would it be okay for her to keep on telling me that she forgives me when I, I'm continuing to abuse her without any remorse? That's just wrong. Something's off. Something's incomplete. Reconciliation would never be possible that way. That's because in order for reconciliation to actually happen, not only do you need forgiveness, but you need genuine repentance as well. If you're missing any of those components, the picture is just incomplete. And the good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God loves to reconcile sinners to himself. If you humbly repent of your sins before God, it says you do not need to fear rejection. If you return to me, I will return to you. You know, in the Old Testament, the animals placed on the altar were the ones rejected on behalf of the Jews so that the Jews would not have to be the ones being rejected, right? You understand how the animal sacrificial system worked? That was the purpose of it. The animals were the ones rejected so that the Jews could remain alive and forgiven. That's what's called substitutionary sacrifice. There were substitutes offered for the sins of people. And of course, all the blood that was shed in God's temple throughout all of Jewish history was meant to point to the one perfect lamb who was rejected by God on the cross in order that we may live and not be rejected. So that's why there's no reason for us to fear rejection if we humbly repent of our sins and place our trust in our Lord who was rejected on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, we're all living in the same broken world. We all have broken pasts. But no matter what your history may be, may the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, use this message to turn your hearts back to him this morning. 
Do not remain spiritually stagnant. Return to him today without any further delay. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Lord of hosts, 